To get the full experience of The Real People Show, listen live on Tuesdays at 1pm or to the live stream Rewind Editions each week on Tuesdays at 10pm and Saturday at 11am. And if that's not possible, we know you'll still love this chat with Jerry and his guest. And a reminder, you can check out the show notes for more information about the music played by checking your app or visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash Jerry. That's www.realitycheck.radio forward slash G-E-R-R-Y. Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Who has influenced you the most? How has your background contributed to who you are today? And how do you deal with stress and trauma? Immersing myself in nature is probably my first go-to. Sometimes with just a kind word, just a, hey, it's okay. Join registered psychotherapist and author, Jerry Pives, as he invites New Zealanders from all walks of life into the psychotherapist chair. Check out reality with others, but also check out reality with yourself. Listen in as they open up about their lives, their family's history, and what drives them. I had already kind of been through a massive trauma, so I already felt kind of strong and equipped at the beginning to deal with something that was out of my control. Prepare to be entranced as Kiwis open up about their heritage, their lives, and the understanding of their place in the universe. Frankly, I know very few people who are not struggling to some degree or other in these highly traumatic times that we're living through. Tune in to Real People with Jerry Pives, Tuesdays at 1pm, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. It's Jerry Pipes here, speaking to you all the way from Wanaka. Today, we've got a real treat for you. Several local people I asked suggested I invite the wonderful Leanne Harling to sit in the psychotherapy chair. Why did they do this? Well, around here, Leanne is famous in these parts for setting up the wonderful Camp Hill Coffee Cart which has become a kind of free speech haven for the last two years, while the rest of New Zealand was being told who could and who could not eat or drink or do anything, in fact. And now this government's trying to tell us what we can and cannot even talk about. Now, to me and many others, this is a government that resembles nothing if not the Communist Party in China. I'm pretty sure this is not something our forefathers who died in two world wars fought for, are you? Have you seen the earth moving in the cemeteries as they all turn in their graves? So while the common turn here were telling us what to do with our bodies and how badly Kiwis should be treating each other, in this little corner of the South Island, close to the shores of the beautiful Lake Hawea, just round the corner, Leanne created her very own little coffee shop in her garden and provided a vital haven for so many local people during this time of, frankly, certifiable insanity. During this session, she shares how a traumatic sacking from a job she loved, a totally unfair sacking, I suspect, as she's not legally allowed to talk about it, how this trauma led her to reevaluate her life and change direction completely. It's exciting stuff. 
This is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, welcome to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. I'm Jerry Pives, and uh, today we've got uh, a wonderful guest, uh, someone I actually know personally. Uh, Her name is Leanne Harling. And the reason I know Leanne is because she runs a, a sweet little coffee coffee cart in a in a part of Hawaii down here in the South Island, just close to Wanaka. And um, I met her uh, through that, and and it's become a very special place for a lot of local people. So it's my uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Leanne into the psychotherapist chair. Leanne, welcome. Thank you, Jerry. It's nice to be here. <laughs> well, we can see each other's faces, but the listeners won't. But um, there's a very beaming, smiley face coming at me down through the uh, the computer. So this series is all about what makes real people tick, what, what goes on, and how ordinary folk are managing these extraordinary times that we're living through. And I figured that it would be nice to talk to people that are doing things in their community uh, that are, I believe uh, or others believe are making a difference. So maybe we could start with you giving us a little bit of a picture of just what your average day looks like, Leanne. What, what sort of happens? Where do you live? Who do you live with? And, and what happens in your life on an average day if such a thing exists? <laughs> um, so I, I live here with my son. He's a builder. He's in his early 20s. Um, And I get up around on weekdays, 6.30, to to make fresh scones for the day and other food that I need for the coffee cart. And then I um, open up at 7.30. So at the moment, with it being winter, I light a fire just prior to 7.30, a a campsite fire, I guess you'd call it. It's kind of a brazier that sits central so people can sit around. So then uh, people start arriving and the coffee cart has attracted (laughs) Um, part of the community that like to speak their truth. And I guess that I have provided a place where they can do that freely. So speech is, you know, there's no limits to, you can say what you like at the coffee cart and you won't be censored or told off that sort of thing. So uh, it's that's what it's evolved to now. It didn't start like that, but it certainly is that now. So there's some really, really rich conversations, interesting things. Um, what did a guy say to me today, a, a truck driver? He said he noticed my sign that said dogs must be on a lead and he's only been coming for about a week and he sits there and listens to conversations And he said, I think the people that come here need to be on leads. (laughs) (laughs) If that gives you an idea of a picture of that, you know, there's all all sorts of people from all walks of life. That must make you a little bit akin to like what a village priest used to be, who used to hear all the ins and outs of what was going in any community. And I <laughs> I have to say that every time I've come and visited your, your wonderful little coffee cart, I, I've 
you've always got a story to tell me about what someone said at some point and it's always highly entertaining and sometimes very revealing (laughs) (laughs) it is I I feel blessed I'm really lucky to be doing this I'm in my right place if you know what I mean That's lovely. That's lovely. And just to give the listeners an idea, can you describe how it looks, your your little coffee cart? And and you don't have to give the, but it is in Hawea. And I want to say anyone who visits Hawea should definitely go visit. But, but it's, it's, do you want to just give a description of what they would see if they came to your, to, to your place? So the coffee cart is situated in my driveway. So, and it's sheltered in behind some trees. So you can't physically see it from the road when you're driving past. All you'll see is a coffee flag out the front. So I have a larger section. It's uh, three quarters of an acre. My house is tucked in the corner. So I live on site. Um, It's a little black trailer. It's um, with power shells along the top and um, chrome bits. And it's, it's, Somebody would call it, I don't know what you'd call it. Um, it's its just really creative, Jerry. <laughs> you know, it's got lots of bits and pieces. You'd have to see it, really. <laughs> well, I guess if people went to your website, they'd be able to see a picture of it, wouldn't they? My so, Facebook page, they could, yes, yeah. And on the Facebook page. Do you want to say what that is, just in case anyone wants to hightail there? It's um, Camp Hill Coffee. Camp Hill Coffee. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you go on the internet, Campbell Coffee, comma, Hawea, H-A-W-E-A, then uh, it'll also come up on the Google search. So that's yes. uh, that's also there. So so how long have you been running this quirky little coffee cart? I mean, I I, I can describe it a little bit. The Hawea Lakeside, is it? It's, it's called Hawea Flats. And, and I think the, the long road is called uh, Camp Hill Road, Hill isn't road. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's nice and easy. So, And this is long, long, long road. And and there, there in this, just by the school and the, the village hall, is your little uh, driveway, which opens into a, a lovely, rather magical garden. And there's a little sort of, uh, well, it's like a shed, isn't it? Just to one side with a brassiere in the winter and everyone's huddled around it. And it's it's incredibly friendly. It's very communal and it's very hard to sit there and have your private conversations with a latte. Although people do it. I see a lot of cyclists come there. But I see all sorts of people, workers who are working around the area. And it's got this lovely, cosy feel about it. And there you are standing in your in your cart and, and got a friendly word and a, and a kind word to everyone who comes in. I think you you make it a really friendly place. And it's one of those few places I remember where, where actually, you know, like where people are encouraged to talk with each other, like communities used to do before the phones yes. came out and everyone just went to have their lattes and, and, and you know, look at their phones. Um, people actually talk and they don't always agree either. So it's quite no. Fun. Oh, no. This, yes. <laughs> Yeah, there's been some interesting visitors that have cleared the place pretty quickly. <laughs> you never, <laughs> I welcome you never... everybody. So, you know, it, it, of course you're going to get diversity among that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, because that's that's the beautiful thing, isn't it? To everyone is welcome. Yes. And that has been so rare. We might come back to that, uh, Leanne, at some point. But just in terms of um, what gave you the idea of this and how long has this been going? It's been running for two years in March, just been. 
So I worked for a long time um, in the local primary school, actually, and that ended. Uh, and I had about three months off trying to decide what I could do next with my life. And a coffee cart seemed, I don't know why, I just thought that Hawea Flat needed something. Now, the population was growing, the place was getting bigger, and you can't get a coffee for miles here in Hawea Flat. So I, um, and it kind of fell into place, and I'm a really creative person. So in them three months uh, from leaving my long-term role at the school was a, a relatively traumatic period for me because of how I felt when I left the school. And so being creative and creating that coffee cart area helped me deal with that. So for three months, I was just really, really creative. Uh, painting, you know what I mean? Decorating, putting the power shelves up, putting a menu on, doing all the stuff, thinking that one day it might be open. Um, <laughs> and that day came uh, in, on, in March, the 24th, actually, in 2021 is when it officially opened. And it sounds like it sounds like that in itself was quite a psychological healing to me. It sounds like yes. you used that time and you used your creativity to heal yourself of what you just called a trauma. Mm. What what sort of trauma was it with the school? What 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 was what happened? Uh, Can you say? <laughs> I'm not I, I'm not allowed to talk about it except that it wasn't really my choice to leave. Um, it wasn't because of the mandate. That was just prior to that. Just the prior to the mandate. Yes. So there was some kind of uh, problem or conflict? Yes. yes, within the staff, yeah. Within the staff, and, and you can't talk about it. So, yeah, that's fine. Um, and it sounds like it traumatised you, is that right? Presumably I you did. can talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, it, I I know now that it was completely meant to be, and I'm grateful for it happening um, because I would, I you know, I would have lost my job in the mandate anyway. Yes. So that trauma was going to come, <laughs> whether I left at the end of the year or <clears throat> at the end of the next year. And of course, we've actually got several people who work <laughs> at schools uh, who visit your your coffee cart. I can think of two at least in particular, uh, who uh, also found themselves gravitating and, and have spoken to me independently of the value they find of, of having a place where they're just accepted um, and they're not uh, in any way kind of frowned upon for, for their views or their ideas. Um, and I think that's, that's you know, the, there are other, there have been other people who have suffered a great deal from um not just what's happened in the last three years with with government policy but what happens in life i mean you know sometimes we go through life don't we and then something erupts and it's often out of our control and and indeed that's often the traumatic element of it that that it was things often happen outside of our control i have no idea what happened to you and i'm not going to pursue that one but what I'm what I'm thinking about is what I'm really interested in is how you used your creativity and you kind of used that as a a way of dealing with your trauma. Yeah, that's the only way I know how to. <clears throat> well, that's what works for me, I suppose. Mm. I don't even. I'm not aware of the time that that's what I'm doing. But, but when 
but when I look back and reflect, I, th- I see that always happens for me if I suffer great trauma as the creative person comes out and or you uh, lose yourself within that creative body. Something happens mm. Mm. and it helps a lot. Well, there there are, um, I'll probably talk about this a bit in, in my little kind of uh, educational chat that I follow these with, but there are different ways that we all process things. You know, we all are different and some of us process things very physically, you know, people sometimes go off on great treks. You know, there's um, there's a wonderful YouTube fella who walked all around Britain uh, because he was very very anxious and de- depressed as well. And the physical walk for him, for about you know, I think it was about a year. He 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 ended up having quite a following it was a bit of a Forrest Gump story actually it was oh. <laughs> and, he, and and then he you know so so for him it was very physical and, and for you it's very creative and for others it can be very much to do with um understanding and working things out uh sometimes with a therapist like myself and sometimes um, just with friends and family and having a, a, a lovely supportive network where we can just kind of lick our wounds and put ourselves back together again, because I think it's important to understand, isn't it, that trauma can fragment us. It kind of can break us up a little bit. And so we need to do a bringing back together. And that sounds like what you did, Leanne. That's wonderful. Well, I did, but then I didn't realise even bigger trauma was coming. but I had already kind of been through a massive trauma so I already felt kind of strong and equipped at the beginning to deal with something that was out of my control once again (laughs) even bigger than before um yeah and it's really interesting to me that that what is emerging straight away in this conversation is the role of things being out of control, that, that we we do not have control, is central to almost every trauma that people who are traumatized often experience something happening to them that is outside of their understanding or outside of their control. And then we have to try and work out, find and navigate our way through. So, yeah. So my um, entire coffee cart experience has been that. <laughs> and you only realize that afterwards. Now, yeah, I, I've yeah. known for a wee while, but yes, yeah, yeah, it's dawned on me. Um, it's it's healing the coffee cart. And when you well. when you look when you look back, Leanne, when you look back through your life, it sounds like you've done that before as well. That you've that's how you've processed or dealt with things. I think so. Yeah, I haven't always dealt with things in a good way like that, but. Um, <laughs> If you're in control of your trauma, uh, I've had out-of-control trauma as well where, um, for example, my father died when I was quite young, so I went on a drinking rampage, that sort of thing. Whether that changes with maturity and you deal with it different as you get older, I don't know, but I wouldn't deal with that. So when my mother died some years later, I dealt with it quite differently. Do you know what I mean? So creativity, I've learned from being on 50, in my 50s. So I guess across my life, I've learned that the best solution for me is the creativity to work through those traumas 
it doesn't it's not harmful like other healings or whatever you do with alcohol and whatnot to get rid of stuff that's not good yeah yes yes and and that that is really interesting and how how old were you when your father died leanne so 26 i wasn't really young but um i was kind of really just starting adulthood properly yeah and it was unex- it was unexpected no. so it was a so, sudden death yeah, and I have said so one of my siblings was still 16 and at home, that sort of thing. So that was hard too, you know, for them. And so what's interesting is um, you went at that time, and obviously you were old enough to drink, so it would be easy to get hold of hold of alcohol. You, you went from... Uh, that trauma and you reached out for something that would as it were soothe the pain so alcohol is used isn't it to um, numb it yeah numb it or take away the numb, thought numb temporarily the pain. temporarily <laughs> yeah how long of a rampage was it if you, if you don't mind me asking <laughs> oh it went on for some months you know until i ended up having having a car accident uh, on his birthday of all days and um things like that and then it probably went on for years actually jerry <laughs> the yes. drinking side, yeah 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 I just drink yeah well i i came from a i came from a, a drinking family uh, i wonder if if was that was that a, a method of dealing with things that you had learned from the people around you when you were growing up at all was that a no, was that a pattern uh, alcohol wasn't part of my childhood my parents didn't drink um how did they deal with trauma, my parents? I don't know. I saw my father had anger issues uh, and my mum just cried. I don't know. Yeah. Because I think I think what's really interesting is how we learn what we learn and, and, and what we work out for ourselves, you know, because often as, when we're very little, we learn certain... Uh, we look at the big people around us and we look for how how they deal with things. Um, but that doesn't always decide it. And it's really interesting that the the environment never fully explains why we all do certain things in certain ways. Um, and it sounds like your parents didn't drink. No. Um, so how did they deal with how did they deal with upset or uh, or disappointment or or indeed trauma? You said they had quite a bit of trauma in their time. No, they didn't. Um, no, 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 they probably didn't. Um, oh, they didn't. I thought I must I must have misheard you. I thought you said they had trauma, but you maybe said well, they didn't have. Well, my mother had trauma when she lost my dad, and so she went into a depression. He died yeah. when she was forty-seven, so that was also menopause time, right? Yeah, she had a really really rough few years which of course doesn't you know branches out to the rest of her children and things that watch that happening so she didn't deal with it at all and she ended up um, having to be on antidepressants uh, I think for the rest of her life she's gone as well yeah she couldn't she had a lot of trauma in her life and that's why and she died of cancer so she carried trauma always and I believe it ate her up. Yeah, I'm just pausing just to absorb what you're saying, Leanne, and just really uh, kind of acknowledge the 
the pain of actually carrying trauma and and it somehow festering inside i think is what you're saying is that right yeah she to start her life she was born she had a heel up in a cliff palate do you know what that is jerry say it one more time a heel up in a cleft palate no you're gonna to have to explain that to me it's when you're born and you've got a gap in your lip here it's so just, just underneath the nose Yes, it hasn't formed to seal, and you're left with a gap. But she yes. also it also extended to the roof of her mouth, which had a hole. In this day and age, when it happens and a baby's born like that, it's a very simple sort of procedure and operation to fix it. But back when she was born, it was a huge thing, and she was left at the hospital by her parents. That was the first trauma. She was actually left. Yeah. That she wasn't. That she looked horrible, ugly. And she and she was adopted, or or what yeah. happened? But the sad thing is, for her, she was adopted by loving people. But it was her grandparents. It was her mater her maternal grandparents. So her her biological mother's mother. So she was raised as a sibling. If you see what I mean, to her aunties and uncles. Who was her mother? Her birth mother. Yeah, she was raised as her, her sister. Her birth mother was raised as her sister. Yes. Sorry, she she grew up thinking, <laughs> got to get this right. No, she, she always knew. Uh, she always knew because she had court cases when she was a child because her birth parents didn't want to sign her up for adoption even though they didn't want her. So she had to fight for the right to be adopted by her grandparents. Wow. And when she was 12, she was allowed a voice in court. So she was finally able to adopt that name and officially be, you know, with her grandparents. With her grandparents. But in the school holidays, she was dropped to her birth parents to play with her birth siblings because they were they continued having kids after she was left at the hospital. Goodness so her trauma started I'm, very early on. Yes. Right, and it right from the... A continue right from the get go. Yes. Yeah, and did she did she live with? So she had this... surgeries. She had surgeries to uh, correct that as a young child, but she was still having cosmetic procedures. I can remember when I was a little girl, she had to go and have an operation, her final operation, to take a scarring lump off the outside. But she had perfect speech and everything like that. She wasn't disabled in any way, shape, or form. She ate well. Everything was fine. But it was, a, it was hard in the beginning to feed her and things. She took up a lot of time for her carer. Yeah. And she was called Gail because there were gale-forced winds that night that she was born. And Joyce, after a sister in the hospital. Because they left her, so she was left there <laughs> dumped. <laughs> Crazy, hey? What an amazing story. Yeah. And um, to be named after, I think names are very interesting. And I've found over the years that why and what a person is named for can have a great, a great significance in how their life unfolded. And to be named after a storm or a gale and to be named after a ward sister as opposed to 
some family member, which is often the case. I mean, until until the last sort of 20 years or so, most people would have named their children after a family member, a father, a mother, a grandparent is is has been the common thing. So she was she was absolutely cut off, even though she was brought up by the grandparents. She went and spent time with them in the school holidays. Yeah, but I'm I'm just thinking about her birth. I'm thinking at the time of her birth. Yes. She was rejected. Yeah, she was. She was abandoned. So years abandoned. and years later when my dad died and she was a 47-year-old woman, that trauma, she was abandoned again. She felt like he had abandoned her this time. So so this trauma resurfaced. Mm-hmm. And I think this is such an important... I was aware important... that she carried trauma. I was aware of that as her daughter. Yes. I was aware you... when she got ovarian cancer, I felt like it was a result of carrying the trauma. She mm. never dealt with it. Yeah. And and I suspect she never had much opportunity to deal with it either. Probably not. I mean, these days, these days, we're mu- there's so much more awareness of of um, you know what is going on psychologically and mental health in relation to trauma. And and but back in the day, um, you know, I think it would have been. I mean, she must have been born in what would that have been? Nineteen forty something. Nineteen fifty. Nineteen fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. I don't think there would have been too much around mental health support, do you? I recall my brother, uh, <laughs> I have a brother that has uh, some uh, interesting uh, behaviours, and we were talking about that as adults, and I said to her, do you consider, because he was also a very difficult child to raise, behaviour-wise. I remember saying to her when we were adults, after working in a school for so long, I got to see different behaviours with children and whatnot. Would you have considered that he had a, you know, an ADHD or something like that, Mum? And Mum said to me, well, back in the day, you never ever went to the doctor for behaviour problem. You, you only ever it. went if your child was half dead, actually. That's the only time you ever went. <laughs> so, yeah, and, there, and was, there wasn't that. Uh, even when we were children, there wasn't the mental health. No, no, it didn't exist. And and which part of New Zealand were you growing up in? Was it down down this end of the world, or was it somewhere else? It was. It was in uh, Western Southland. Yeah. So uh, a seaside town called Tuatapu, which is on the southwest coast. Most people will have heard of Riverton, actually. So it's about a thirty-minute drive around the southwest coast from there. Yes, and and I'm wondering, um, you know, on you're saying that your your brother, um, was, your brother was younger than you, was he? Both of my brothers were, yeah, uh, yeah. You've got two yeah. brothers, two brothers yes. younger. So you were the eldest in this family yes. setup, and 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 so you would have been probably more aware um, of kind of what was going on earlier. I, I suspect uh, old oldest child often has much more insight into what's going on. Uh, would that be fair to say? Oh, yeah. I had, um, as a, a small, a young girl, young, I can remember feeling like it outgrown my family already. <laughs> I I was felt uh, 
trapped in a small wee town with yes. small-minded people. Mm. And I knew as a young girl, isn't it interesting, <laughs> that uh, I was born for better things mm. than to sit there for the rest of my life. And yeah. It's a, I don't know. Weird. <laughs> you know, I, I'm fascinated at how you you found such a creative way out of trauma and you had grown up knowing that trauma was being carried by by your mother. And then as an adult, uh, you know, whilst you were off on your drinking spree, uh, your mother was kind of re-stimulated. An old, her first trauma was reappearing with your dad's death. And so she was, she went into, uh, you know, you say that she she cried um, and she became very depressed and she was on antidepressants and you, you well, were going to, to. It was a trauma to get her to the doctor. It wasn't easy because she didn't want to face it. And then yeah. when she did go to the top doctor, she broke down and let it all out. And then what happened was the doctor broke down at the same time with her and and stopped working like type scenario oh while they sorted their own trauma. <laughs> so the doctor was carrying a whole bunch of trauma. Must have been. And my mum must have unlocked that <laughs> somehow. So your mum, this is amazing. Your mum turned up after after you the 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 well, you were twenty six at that point. After I you, made an appointment with her GP, <clears throat> the local town and, doctor. Yeah, and you kind of frog marched her into the GP. <laughs> oh, it wasn't easy, but she went. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I only and found she, out this later. She she must have broken down. Like I mean, sobbing, crying, letting out whatever. She, I don't know. Can't, I don't know what that was like, but it would yeah. have been big, if you know what I mean. There would have been a lot pent up, wouldn't there, inside? I think so, and I think at that point she must have done that. And the doctor, I don't know what happened, but the doctor didn't do so well for a while. Must have triggered something. My mum's grief must have triggered something. And isn't that interesting that we... The, the way in which one person's trauma, if the trauma is allowed to be expressed, it triggers everyone else's trauma. It doesn't uh, do. And so if you're, if you're in a community or a culture where the grieving, and, and this is all about grief, isn't it? This is, this is grief at your father's death and probably grief at, at her own abandonment by her birth parents for herself when she was a child. So you got layer upon layer, and I won't bore you, but you know the research is very strong on this. That that actually we're more likely to be traumatized if if we've got re- history of trauma. And I, I want to remind you that you said, "Oh no, I don't think they had much trauma." And now we're, <laughs> we're covering such a, an, a well, not a can of worms, but such a deep deep amount of pain and grief going on that you're uh, and and she would have been carrying that and of course as a young child i wonder if that impacted you do you think that that she you said she cried a lot and you said your dad shouted a lot or he had anger issues and 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 you said no, that she, she was yeah i suppose she only cried with um big events not all the time sorry um okay it was quite stark most of the time very uh hard 
you know, held all that back and in. Yeah. Within. Uh, so, so she wasn't collapsed by the trauma. She became hard with it. Yes, she did. With the abandonment. Yeah. From, yeah. yeah. That's what I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, and, and, and my dad had just had a, um, a temper where he was, he would get angry, you know, yeah. He would lose the plot. At, I don't know, whatever he was doing at the time. But that anger, you just grew up. So I was never, ever, um, um, you know, it wasn't a, um, physical. It was within him, but it was unreal to watch. <laughs> you know, a fuse blowing. And would he direct his anger at things then? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Um, my rabbit, my pet rabbit, was eating his carrots in the garden. He wanted to shoot the rabbit because it was because he was precious about his garden. Um, he got his gun, which which was a had a lever that you pulled out the side to, uh, and it would click, you know, but it didn't click into place, so you could load it. So it flicked closed and cut the top of his fingers off. So the rage. Oh, no. And the rabbit, meanwhile, still eating the veggies, right? <laughs> so the rage. So he comes inside saying to my mother, swear, swear word, swear word, fix this, swear word, swear word, fix it, and booted the washing machine and broke his toe. Oh. You know, you the, and, and you the, make and it the up. fury of the anger. You, the So much damage can happen. <laughs> and we would witness this. <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous and, and what was that like I mean what must have that been like to grow well, up well it was easy because we were I didn't know it was just uh common it it's was what you were used to you just stayed out of the way pretty much yeah yeah but what do you think its impact was on you Leanne to, to what did what do you think when you look back at that and when you're what age are you when you when you're witnessing this particular rabbit I was, a teenager. Loss. Oh, I was probably early teenager at that point, yeah. you know, 12, yeah. something like that there. Um were you scared? Were you were you were you uh, uh I know the scare uh well you wouldn't get in the way because that would be <laughs> I don't know, I never got in the way to know that, but you just knew it. Do you know what I mean? You, knew. you just had an intuition you that you stay out of the way and you'll be fine. Yeah. And, and you were. <laughs> uh, what yeah. did I see? Uh, somebody that was completely out of control. I don't know. I haven't really analysed it. Um, no. I know that it ha has happened to me in my early years, raging out of control over ridiculous things and having to try and overcome it. It's, yeah. um, and I knew that come directly probably from watching it. You know, you learn behaviours, don't you? Yes, isn't, it, isn't that interesting, really, when we stop and we think about how we learn to process our emotions and what you saw was was someone who was clearly struggling to control his emotions interestingly to me though the anger seemed to get directed back at him he chopped his own fingers off and he broke his own toe yeah so, so got worse and worse for her and then i guess what would happen then it would end somewhat but he would go take himself away i guess to calm down and then we could deal with the situation, what was wrong with his toe and his hand and, every, you know, but it would take a, you know, it must have been hard for my mother. 
Um, yeah. But I had an incident uh, maybe about three years ago. I just had to take my dishwasher out for this uh, because it was going to be replaced. And the leg must have been stuck on the vinyl, right? So I'm just, and I'm calm. There's, uh, I've had a great day. I'm pulling and it's stuck. And I'm pulling. And I know in that moment I could just let it go and walk away. But no. I, there's a switch and I ripped it out and I ended up breaking the leg on the dishwasher and ripping a hole in the vinyl. <laughs> All in a matter of losing the plot and ripping the thing out <laughs> rather than walking away. Well, I'm always tested. <laughs> you didn't break your toe though, did you? <laughs> no, I don't go that far. <laughs> I almost laughed after that experience. I've done this so many times. I know it was just yeah. a silly, you know, decision on my part to continue. And, and it's interesting because you're using the word trigger. And I think this is really important when we are talking about traumas because sometimes you're an outsider or an observer, someone looking on might actually think, well, what a state to get yourself in for such oh, a yeah. small thing, yeah. you know. And and yet when we're in that state, and when we when we become triggered, it's almost like we go into a mindless state. We're not really oh, paying totally. attention. No. No. And and there's a super strength that comes on board as well. That's what I feel. I'll get mm. the dishwasher out regardless. You know, you know, you know, I it's, and then yeah, I'm gutted because I've broken it and probably ruined the warranty all in a split-second decision. Well, I'm sure you're the only person in New Zealand who's lost the plot and broken something either of themselves or the furniture. They regretted it much later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is this is really fascinating. I'm talking to Leanne Harling from the uh, Camp Hill Coffee Cart in Hawea. And we're discussing really how we manage and deal with trauma. And we're looking at the, the family roots of, of how we deal with trauma because no one responds to trauma in the same way. We're all different and we all manage trauma in a different way. Um, and uh, we're learning quite a lot of important information, really. I wonder if we can go back any further, Leanne. What about your grandparents? Uh, we know already that your mother's grandparents were... Uh, you know, took her on uh, despite her disfigurement and her rejection by the parents. So we already know something about them. Do you, what do you know about how how the grandparents lived and what kind of lives they had? How hard were their lives? I don't. I didn't know any of them. They all died right young. Uh, however, my mum talked about um, her dad being a drunk, but a very very happy drunk. That used to drive her mother insane. <laughs> um, so because she was raised by her grandmother, she had trauma there too. She was 16 when her she called it considered her her mum when she died in her arms. <laughs> My poor mum. So she she lost her when she was 16. Um, so that and but but you know her and her dad, she loved her dad. He was just a happy guy, but a drunk. You know, worked hard, um, had a lot of love, but uh, frustrated the heck out of her mother, I think. My dad, my dad doesn't have a lot of childhood memories. Uh, he was one of those, a typical, he, there was a family of 13. They were very poor, not many memories of childhood. He was illiterate, couldn't read or write, didn't have much of an education. Um, his father, he didn't really know his father. 
he was really close to his mum from what I, I I do remember her briefly. She died when I was seven. Um, he loved her a lot. So she was just a simple lady that was always pregnant and had lots and lots of kids that she, you know, of course when, and I think they separated so you didn't get any uh, allowance for your, you know, DPB or support for a single mother. So she had to raise these children on nothing, I suppose. So they had somewhat of a, my dad in particular had a hard childhood. So I remember a lot when I was growing up, uh, my disregard for looking after a brand new pair of shoes or a bicycle, things like that would make him very upset. Because I'm lucky to have that type, you know, I think a lot of us have had that. <laughs> you don't know, you're ungrateful. You don't know how lucky you are to have a pair of shoes to walk to school in, you know. So, I, and I hated that growing up. I thought, for God's sake, we're living in different times. Why do you keep throwing that in my face? That is not my fault. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an echo. Uh, and, and it's really interesting, isn't it? Because in all the division that, that is being created in New Zealand today by trying to separate and divide people by colour and gender and put Kiwi against Kiwi, um, I think it's really often what gets missed in all of this is how very tough life was for so many New Zealanders, whether you're Maori or not, you know, whether you're Pacifica, whether you come from the, the, the Scots, you know, whether you're wherever you came from and whatever was happening, life was very hard for a lot of us. It was. And it was much. My parents. I feel like my parents were slaves to the government, and they didn't. They died before retirement, Jerry. You know what I mean? Said, but that's a ripple. It sounds like only your paternal grandmother was that you only knew your paternal grandmother. Is that right? Yeah. To meet. Yeah, I met her biological parents as well. My mum's biological parents. I knew them. My mum always said to us growing up, "This is what happened to me." However. I don't want to stop you having a relationship with them if that's what you want. But I always felt like, uh, well, I didn't want to because I didn't like them. They, I had a bad vibe from them. That, but also I thought that was a bit of a slap in her face. I could sacrifice that. Um, but I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything. Yeah. And and how did it turn out for you, Leanne? Because when we started, you did say you were um, living with your son in his early 20s. So what, what happened for you as a, as a young woman and, and becoming a mother? Can you share a little bit about that? Because I, I wonder how that would have uh, impacted you, really. All, all that history that you've described is quite a lot to be carrying on your shoulders as you go forward and become a young mum and all of that. Um, so I met a young man when I, when I was 19. I moved to Melbourne. And I have some a couple of years later, I met a man that I brought back and married him. Um, he's my son's father. So we separated uh, amicably. He's still my best friend. But he, uh, for me, he drank too much. Once again, I don't come from a family of drinkers, so and I don't know how I ended up with one. Uh, actually, we both were, Jerry. So when I said I was having my wee spree, we both were. But when I got pregnant, my life changed, of course. And his stayed as it was, as we, you know, we were both in that, doing that, drinking together. Yeah. I got yeah. pregnant, and obviously, like I can see that's where it so slowly started having separate lives. So when our son was seven, 
we um, separated. And he's still your best friend. He is. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, that's so that's so lovely to hear that you've managed to sustain that yeah. uh, and and that connection. And how many how many children have you got? Just one. Just the one son. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen. This is this is really interesting because um, I'm thinking about the the role of alcohol in your own early experiences of trauma, and then how it's appeared also going back in your family roots, so that your your um, paternal grandfather um, was was what was described as a happy drunk, but yeah. but not so happy because it sounds like your paternal grandmother, it sounds like she had a pretty hard time with that. So I'm wondering how happy a drunk he was and what that expression might hide. It sounds like this, the expression a happy drunk could potentially hide a multitude of sins. What do you think? <laughs> Mum sort of described he'd come home from the pub happy and she would be upset because a job hadn't been done that needed or something like that. And he would refuse to argue with her. Absolutely flatly refuse. He'd smile and... And she would scream <laughs> at him, and she got nothing. He was just smiling. That's what she meant by happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He didn't have a, 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 a an evil bone in his body as far as that. He's just a very happy drunk. <laughs> but, yeah, he must yes. have had trauma, I suppose, or something. I don't know. I've got no idea. Do you? I was going to say, do you know? Do you know anything about you know how far back your family history goes? Does it go back any further at all? I mean, the, my my mum did some genealogy. You know, we did a genealogy course and that together, and we've traced names, but we don't know anybody. No, we don't know. Do you know? Do you know where they came from and where their roots were? Where your family roots we were come from? English and like it looked like we come on on whaling boats and things like that. But um, with what I've learned in the last few years, Jerry, I have no idea where I'm from. My mind's changed a lot with that. But supposedly, in the time when I was younger and we did this look, it looked like our family came in from England and Scotland. You know, those areas. Yeah. And what's changed for you then? I'm just fascinated by what you just said. You said Everything. you don't know where you're from anymore. No, I don't. Everything has changed, Jerry. What do you mean? You you don't know whether you came from an alien or? or... <laughs> um, something like that. I mean, I don't think I came from an alien, but it's something like that. I just, everything that I have been taught, I think is a lie. and. My world, as I knew it, has is is not anymore. My reality, as I knew it, has changed, like for the better, I think. But um, you know, it's been an interesting. God, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like we're we're touching on something which uh, is a very big subject for you, um, and I'm just thinking about uh, what you feel. You once believed or or knew that you know that you no longer believe or you doubt. Is that what you're saying? That you now have more more questions or you think things are changing? Give me help me out here, Leanne. I'm 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 floundering. <laughs> um, for me, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm just going to put it out there. 
one of the most, I, I started looking into things with the vaccine rollout, which started with looking at that. And it led to other things and other things and other things. Um, and one of the most massive things I've probably found out is that, you know, I'd, it's difficult to get it out. I don't believe that we're living on a spinning globe. There you go. So that big. Yeah. <laughs> so that's massive for me. It didn't, I didn't, like, I, I, I once thought, well, it doesn't, what does it matter? Whether it's that or this or that or this, what does it matter? But I, I'm, I'm changing every day. <laughs> it well, does it's very, matter. It's, very it, it's actually become very topical in the last two days because Elon Musk, who's meant to know about space and, and all of this stuff, he just did an interview uh, recently and he talked about um, uh, the great catastrophes and ancient civilizations as if the history we know is, he was really hinting very strongly that, that and I think he knows a thing or two, that fellow. I, I, I don't entirely know about him, but I think, but Elon Musk uh, did an interview that, that's been going the rounds in, in, in the sort of what I call the free thinking channels. And he was talking about, I only caught a, like a 30 second glimpse of this, so I, I can't speak with any authority, but he was talking about, ancient catastrophes and ancient civilizations. Um, and, yeah. and he was talking about the magnetic pole not being what we think it is. Now, it yeah. sounded like he was saying things are not as we've been told. And, and um, you know, so... But, and, and but of course, for me, they are, though, as they feel. <laughs> huh. <laughs> with all of this knowledge it makes me feel I, I'm stoked I am I like the fact that I'm not on that because I didn't like that feeling what feeling? on what? spinning on uh, a ball in the middle of infinite nothingness yeah and, and being being descended from a shrew for goodness sake I mean, yeah I you did know, never what... felt right I um <laughs> As a little girl, I knew, I, I, yeah, this is really interesting for me, all of this. So it's brought up something that I was shut down when I was little. So now I'm back in line with how I felt when I was a young girl, and I feel really good about that. So something was shut down when you were little. I wonder what that was. What did you, What happened? Something happened when I started school, and I don't know what it was because I don't remember what it was. However, I ended up with a fear about dying and creation and God, so much so that I put my mother through so many trauma because I remember crying in bed night after night because I didn't know what happened to me when I died. And I had all this sort of trauma, and I think now that I know what I know and I think back, I think you're born kind of knowing your roots but that is slowly indoctrinated out of you. And I must have gone to school and started learning something that I wasn't really aware, but if you know what I mean, I think that I was taught something that I knew deep down wasn't right. And it was causing grief in me as a child. Mum took me to church. She took me to see nuns. I went to church and they said, I said, well, I, how, how was the grass? And they said, well, God said there would be grass. So there was. He said there would be water and there was. And I, that wasn't good enough for me either. At that time, as a young girl, and I had lots of questions, and I was just shut down. And I learned really quickly that actually, I'm never going to know, and no one can answer. So, so you, at that point, shut down, 
when this has happened, I'm back there <laughs> thinking this, this is what was shutting down. This knowledge that I'm gaining now is what I, was, I thought I lost, but I wasn't aware of it, if you know what I mean. So I'm hearing uh, some really interesting, uh, it, almost like I'm hearing a young philosopher at the age of five going to school. Four, probably, yeah. I'm Four. very happy. Yeah, before school, I was happy. Something happened when I started school, Jerry. I don't know what it was, but it upset me big. It might have been kids in the playground talking. I don't know. I can't no. remember an event, but no, I just know but- what come from, a lot of trauma come for me about where I'm from and who I am and how I got here. And you know, and I, I knew that other kids didn't care and ask those questions, so why the heck was I? Why did it bug me so much? Yeah. I didn't know, well, and I still don't. <laughs> so it sounds like you were a philosopher to me. It sounds like you were someone who asked very deep questions. And oh, yeah, I've always like... asked a lot of questions. I know, it's annoying for people. <laughs> and this brings me right back to your coffee cart, actually, Leanne, because when I first came to your coffee cart, I, I, I love history. And in the 18th century in English history, so there was this culture. As soon as coffee came on the scene, so too came a great deal of intelligence. I believe personally that coffee is, in, is like a drug for our intelligence. So I'm, I'm utterly addicted to it and I shall remain so to my dying day. But, but what, I'm, what I know is that when coffee arrived in Britain, coffee houses sprung up everywhere. And the 18th century population became addicted to coffee, rather like we are now here. I mean, New Zealand's a wonderful coffee culture. And I think that's why we come up with such brilliant solutions to everything. I know I talk with a with a with a posh English accent, but I am actually born Kiwi, so I am a wee when it comes to Kiwi. Uh, and I spent a large deal of my life feeling I didn't belong with them over there in the UK. So so um, and. and what I'm saying here is that the the um, the culture of the coffee house created so much. Some of the greatest thinkers of the 18th century developed their ideas in the coffee house, and some of the greatest businesses in the world, the East India Company, some of the most successful. They became they started life as conversations in coffee houses, and they developed into joint stock companies, and the world changed as a result of coffee. So I think you are coffee and thinking and deep questions you see when i when i walked into your coffee cart area your lovely little space with a with a glorious stand up table and a brazier and a little shed in case it's raining and it's just in your garden and it's ever so it's ever so homely and friendly and there's you smiling and inviting all sorts of conversations it makes me think that you know the the, the coffee house could can become a powerhouse for our future, you know, and and certainly with what has happened, you and with all that's gone on in your life, this deep thinker, I, I sense that this deep thinker um, would out would come, and and you've created this environment where people can talk deeply. I mean, when I've been there, I've sometimes I occasionally stopped talking. <laughs> And and I listen and around me, the conversations are buzzing, you know, and they could be about anything, but they're like two or three conversations. And I'm just very happy to sit my coffee sometimes and listen into these conversations because they're so deep. They're so so real. What I learned from the lady that, because prior to starting my coffee cart, I've had absolutely no experience in hospitality. So 
and I didn't really visit cafes. I didn't drink coffee, actually. So the cafe cultural cafe, that scene wasn't something I'm familiar with. So I opened my coffee cart. The lady that trained me talked about this coffee culture that used to exist in New Zealand, and she said it's gone. And it was a culture where people would come in and you would talk from, if somebody was at two tables down, it didn't matter, you talked to that table. So everybody talked across the room to each other, right? She said, what's because she's been a barista for 20 plus years, so she's seen this. And what has happened over the years is now <laughs> no one talks across the tables. You go in, you don't even look outside your table. You put your head down at your table and that's where you stay. And there's none of that culture's gone. So when she sees my car, she's explaining to me, this is how it used to be. So isn't that interesting? That's wonderful. I, I'm hoping that anyone listening to this is going to be utterly inspired to open up <laughs> a little coffee shop in their garden for their local people and people can start talking to each other again because we, we're losing the art and it's almost as if there's a there's a determined effort to destroy our human connectedness, you know, and that's another very big subject. Um, but listen, look, we're, we're, um, we're looking at, I'm talking to Leanne Harling of Hawaii Coffee Cart, and we're discussing really the important things in life here. We're, we're discussing whether we're on a spinning globe. We're discussing whether, whether we've been lied to. We're discussing what it's like when people actually go for a coffee and actually talk to each other. And we're also discussing how we deal with trauma and this very, this creation of this this amazing little space, which very few people know about. It's like a secret little gem in our local area. And and, and you wouldn't know it unless you know it, uh, that it's there, really. You could easily drive past. And, um, and I think we're discussing also how this came out of trauma, that this, this actually was the creation of you, your Leanne, your your creativity bursting forward as a way of dealing with uh, an, what sounds like an upsetting trauma, a very tough trauma to go through as you left a, a local school. And it sounds like, you know, for people to walk into your little space and to know that trauma created this and your solution to trauma created this. You know, one of the greatest writers about trauma is, is a man called Peter Levine, and he wrote an amazing book called Waking the Tiger. And in that book, he says that, you know, one of the things about trauma is really the wisdom that can come from it, that, that trauma carries a lesson if we can just hear it and process and and understand what the the trauma the trauma carries a healing within it that within the terrible things that happen to us there is a healing opportunity uh, and i i personally believe this about sickness too that when we're sick we're sick because we might we have something to learn and that life is a is a journey not a destination that life is a continuous unfolding and discovery of who we are and what life is. And, and I think like you, I was a bit of a philosopher when I was little as well. And, and that set me on this path. There's very little distinction between, you know, spiritual 
understanding philosophy, understanding and psychology, all those three to me wrapped together. Um, and, and, and I'm thinking about how trauma, the trauma of past generations led you to being able to find a really beautiful and positive solution to your to a traumatic situation which has now resulted in something that not only was good for you but is changing your local community because i know that there were times in the last 3 years where you were the only place where some of us could go for a cup of coffee everywhere else kicked us out we weren't allowed in restaurants because we didn't agree with some idiot in Wellington, yeah, telling us what should what should go inside our bodies, what we should put inside our bodies, and we were punished yeah. for disagreeing. Now, if I'm if that doesn't sound, I hate discrimination. Actually, that yeah. comes from a young age. My father was a racist, and uh, I hated it with a passion. I've always hated that sort of behaviour. So that comes, from, and so when this came up, I just hated it straight away. <laughs> Hated it. And it, isn't it, yeah. it so so ironic that uh, a, a, a government, a politician who touted herself around the planet, around the world as this wonderful, caring, kindness, you know, take one for the team, um, was brutally and maliciously targeting anyone who didn't do exactly what she wanted them to do, which is the very a very footprint of fascism, of trauma, uh, sorry, of totalitarianism, I mean. It is, you it's know. totalitarianism, ruling by fear. That's what she did. And, and, and uh, so very well, too, I might add. I feel, like, I feel like you've just opened up another amazing Pandora's box of valuable conversation about racism and, and, and also how Kiwis have carried very racist views. There's a history of that. We know that. But, you know, what you've just described is someone who grew up in a racist, you know, with a racist father and made up your own mind about that. And that moved you to where you are. And yet now governments would have us in some way try and pay for past behaviors of people that are not us, they're our fathers or our grandparents, and we're not even racist anymore. So I suddenly... Know. And those behaviours that happened in the past didn't even happen anyway. So it's all based on a lie. Yeah. How many? How much truth can we tell? And, and when you talk about you know historical guilt, well, you better get your history right. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jerry. You better get your history right because yeah, what yeah. I found out, I, I studied history, and I'm discovering that practically everything we were told about history that's correct was was a lie. And I know, yeah, been... that's the division, always, always trying to create division. And yet in little old Hawea, just close to little old Wanaka, deep down in the South Island, rather beautiful part of the South Island, there's yeah. this little oasis called Leanne's Camp Hill Coffee Cart, and, and you, you are much loved and much appreciated by members of the community. Uh, Leanne, thank you so much. Uh, I feel so rich from this conversation. Even I, you know, having met you and seen you in the busy coffee cart, there's so much here I didn't know about you and so much that I've 
I've appreciated you sharing and and being so open and honest about all the all the pain and suffering that has gone on in your family. And uh, my my wish is that every single sharing of our stories lightens us and unburdens us, makes you stronger, and, and makes you stronger, and also that somewhere in the in the other world that when these things get kind of talked about and shared and made sense of there's a kind of forgiveness that goes out into the out into the world into the energy spheres it spheres and and it kind of it heals past generations too I, I i wouldn't do the work i did if i didn't have some spiritual idea that when we understand and we make sense of what's happened we're also releasing the spirits of the dead, the, the ancestral spirits, so they can travel where they need to travel. I feel sometimes they're bound to us because we don't deal with these things. And that, of course, is, is what my life's work is about, whether it's through body work and touch, which I think releases a great deal and energy, whether it's through psychotherapy or you know whatever it is, whether it's through creativity. And I, I, I want to really acknowledge uh, what you've shared. So, Leanne, thank you so much. Uh, is there anything you want to say in 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 closing before we before we finish? No. <laughs> thank you though for um, hosting me, Jerry. Well, um, thank you. I didn't know the conversation was going to go this way, and it's felt like about five minutes. So thank you. Yeah, it's been a fascinating. I'm going to I'm going to have a think now and think about some some of the psychological concepts that have come up here and talk about not you I won't be talking about you anymore but I'll be talking about some of the psychological concepts that might be of interest to listeners so if you're listening hang in there because I'm going to come back after I've said goodbye to Leanne and reflect a little bit on some of the psychological models that are very relevant to this conversation thank you so much Leanne People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You're listening to Real People with Jerry Pives right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. So how did you find that? Wasn't that interesting to hear all about uh, Leanne's uh, 
project and how she lives her life. You're listening to um, Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. I'm Jerry Pives, and this is Reality Check Radio. And this is a radio station where we try and tell the truth and tell the real story of what is going on for New Zealand society. So what did we learn from today? What what came out of this for you and, and what did it make you think of? Well, I'm going to tell you what it made me think about. This whole series of real people in the psychotherapist chair is actually about what gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that makes you tick? What matters to you? And how do you cope and solve with stresses and traumas of, of life? Well, it was very clear with Leanne, wasn't it? What got her out of bed at 6.30 every morning was making scones. <laughs> but it was more than that. She got out of bed in the morning to light a brazier to... Um, provide a welcoming and creative space for members of her community to come and share and talk and freedom and uh, without any restriction on what they can say and who they should be. And what got Leanne out of bed in the morning was the creation of a really beautiful space, the, the, the love and care that she clearly put into opening up her, her garden to um, people coming into her coffee cart and having a welcome warm space, even in winter, a cosy space around, around a fire, humans rubbing shoulders, talking to each other, not to contraptions in, held in their hand. And above all, deep underneath of all of that, I think we saw how growing up with a racist father, she wanted to create a space where all are equal, where there is freedom of speech and there's no apartheid, no division, where people can speak their truth without censorship. Well, I never planned it this way, but what an amazing beginning for this series. When we think about what's going on in our society today, where you're not allowed to think certain thoughts anymore, Basically, if you don't think the thoughts of the woke community, you're considered to be uh, someone who should be shut up or shut down or in some way um, put away. Well, I'm not sure that's the society I want for Kiwis and for my children and my grandchildren. What do you think? So what I want to talk about in my reflections from this conversation, this wonderful conversation with Leanne, is the importance of meaning and purpose. What gets us out of bed in the morning for all of us comes down to what gives us meaning. What is our purpose in life? Now, this is not such a new idea. <laughs> um, one of the most famous and and really amazing people that I've come across in, in my lifetime has been the story of Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl wrote an amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he was using man in the generic term of man and woman. Our search for meaning. Humanity's search for meaning. In that book, he noticed that in Auschwitz, 
the prisoners like him who survived were the ones who had a purpose and a meaning for their survival. And wasn't it interesting when we think about what gives us life and what kills us? Viktor Frankl believed that meaning gives us life. And by definition, I would say that non-meaning kills us. We have so many stories of people dying young, dying early, dying before retirement. And I wonder how much meaning there was in such a life. Now, that's not to say everyone who lives to a ripe old age has found meaning. But it is interesting that what feeds us is not so much food and things. But what feeds us is this deep, deep sense of meaning and purpose. And Viktor Frankl himself, um, after after the war, he basically um, set up his own school of psychotherapy uh, called logotherapy, the word, the meaning, purpose, truth. And his was called the third, the third Viennese school of psychotherapy. The second, well, the first one was Freud, of course. He practically invented the idea of talking about our issues deeply, psychoanalysis, listening, hearing each other, unpacking the suppressed and hidden parts of what goes on for us. Learning to dance and make sense of the powerful unconscious forces that are deep within us all. He called them drives, drives, things that drive behavior, even when we're not aware of it. And of course, you know, he's also famously known for seeing most of our problems as suppressed sexuality. Well, that's been pretty much, uh, uh, you know, uh, debunked now. But still, you can't take away from Freud the depth of his understanding of the unconscious and the importance of us making sense of ourselves. That's the first Viennese school. The second Viennese school, Viennese school was, was Adler, Adler. And he he was the one who coined the term the inferiority complex and the idea of neurotic conditions that were where we behave abnormally or we we kind of um, have problems. But he developed a much more humanistic individual form of psychology, where he put at the center of this the our drive for fulfillment and self-realization. But also he put our problems into the context of society. It's not just down to each of us, where we live, who we are part of, the country, the culture, how does society teach us to think? (laughs) All of that makes a big difference. And then came the third school, which was Frankl's school, third Viennese school of psychotherapy, purpose and meaning. And if we think about how we live in a society, we don't live in isolation. It makes me think about, or it doesn't make me think, I think about a wonderful saying by Krishnamurti, a very profound and deep thinker. He said, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And when you think about our society, when I first came to New Zealand, 
uh, return to New Zealand, I, I was shocked at the level of materialism that abounded. Uh, the first cafes I went to seemed to be full of people talking about things. And I I, I do sit in cafes and listen in. Um, I'm just very nosy, I guess. Since a very young age, I've always been intrigued by why we do what we do and what makes us human. And I was shocked. It was all about real estate, as if the only thing that mattered in New Zealand was things, money, looking after number one. What a selfish, atomized, separate, isolated, and lonely society we've become. And this materialistic theology, a theology that is a belief, the belief that another thing is going to make me feel happy, is insane. It's it's a complete inversion of what goes on, what, what really matters in life. I'm talking to you from Wanaka, and down here in Wanaka, we actually have a time every year. It's called the inversion. And the cloud settles over the lake, much to the disappointment of people who come on holiday at that time. It's never quite on the same time, and some years it's worse than others. But the inversion covers up the beauty of the mountains. It turns everything gray. It literally sits about 40 or 50 feet above the lake, or maybe a little bit higher, but... There's an oppressive sense. And, and if it goes on for too long, the people in Monica start going bonkers. And, and they suddenly jump in their cars and drive up to the mountains and come above the inversion. They come above the cloud. They go up to the nearest hill and have picnics. <laughs> well, inversion is really interesting because it hides what the truth is. And I wonder what the inversion is hiding. Well, we'll come to that in a second. But let us think about inverting the true nature of humanity to some moronic, uh, materialistic, limited, lowest common denominator. You see, the theology of materialism, which is what most of us have been brought up over the last 50 years, get a job, get a house get security. It's completely insane. And it's certainly not a human approach. You see, when you have an inverted theology that society follows, then you know it's no good because it produces sickness and illness of the spirit. Illness and sickness of the spirit, of the mind, and ultimately of the body. If we look at a small town like Wanaka, let's say there's about, I don't know the exact number, there's about 10,000 people here. Do you realize that 44% of the population across the world experience a bipolar episode? That's massive depression and manic excitement in their lives. That 44% will experience a bipolar episode. Those statistics uh, come from the uh, World Health Organization. And did you know that that um, uh, 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 as much a bigger number of people will become depressed in their life 
And that 20% of depression, depressive people, will have bipolar within five years. And did you know that about 7.5% of those will successfully commit suicide? So let's just think about that. In a little town like Wanaka, 10,000 people. 4.4 thousand people will experience a really distressing and disturbing bipolar episode. 3,000 of those will experience it repeatedly. These are not my statistics. These are government statistics. 3,000 will be diagnosed as having a serious, repetitive bipolar condition. And even worse, although that can be a living hell to be in stuck in that cycle of depression and mania that characterizes bipolar. And I bet you know someone who's got that. With 44%, how can you not? But over those, out of those four and a half thousand that will experience bipolar, little Wanaka, okay, four and a, four, four and a half thousand, we don't have a hole big enough to put everyone in. If we just rounded up everyone who's going to have bipolar, we don't have a hole big enough to put four and a half thousand people in little old Wanaka. But even worse, according to the statistics, 700 people, over 700 people, will commit suicide out of those. And we actually, we don't have a hole big enough to put that in. So when I walk around Wanaka and I think that 44%, just under half of the people I'm walking past are likely to experience the distress of a bipolar episode, and probably everyone will experience the distress of that because it's very distressing to be around. I'm just using bipolar as one example. I think about what a sick, sick, sick society has been created with this inverted philosophy of materialism. And I think what Frankl saw in the middle of Auschwitz, what he saw as a prisoner was an inversion an insanity. And he survived by dreaming his purpose in life. Now, he was a psychoanalyst. And he survived by going around the back of one of the buildings and delivering imaginary lectures on, on human happiness and well-being to conferences of psychoanalysts. And to anyone else, you'd have seen this man in prisoner of war clothing, round the back, talking into space. And you think, goodness me, he's mad. But what he was doing was he was finding his meaning. And he survived. And he actually became that person delivering those lectures. So whether we subscribe to a, a culture where we're not meant to really think about things all too deeply, a materialistic religion, a scientific, a scientific religion where science is about things, not, not the spirit, not what makes us truly human, then what we understand, what I understand, is 
Krishnamurti was quite right. It's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. In fact, you could go further and to say that for us to adhere to an inverted covering up, a covering up of what makes us human, is a very sick approach to life. But finding our meaning, a meaning that includes what we can give to each other. Because one of the greatest fulfillments of a human being is to give. Remember, I said it was an inverted philosophy, the materialistic one, which is take, take, take. What else can I have? But psychologically, we know that one of the most fulfilling um, parts of being a human being is to share and help others. And to find our true meaning and purpose and to realize our profoundly divine or spiritual nature. Now, that might sound a little bit far away from talking about a little coffee cart in a remote little hamlet just outside of Wanaka, in the, deep in the south of New Zealand. But when I think of Liang getting out of bed early in the morning, in the dark and the cold, to make her scones and light the brazier and get everything ready every day, every day, to welcome people. What I see there is not an inversion, but a true purpose and meaning. So you've been listening to me, Jerry Pives, on Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And remember, if anything in this uh, talk or this program has distressed you, there's a lot of help at hand. And uh, I have a fact sheet on that, uh, which you can download from my website, www.jerrypives.com. And you can just download that, and that gives you some ideas and people you can contact if you're worried or distressed. Um, triggers happen. Uh, talking about real things can challenge us. And the challenge of today, the challenge for everyone listening, is simply this. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What is your purpose? And if you're not sure what that is, go for it. Keep hunting for that purpose and that meaning. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Real People with Jerry Pives right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. So welcome to this third segment of the episode. This is called Music with Meaning. Over the next hour, I'm going to be asking my featured guests to track their lives through eight tracks of music, tracks which all have a particular meaning for them from that time in their life. So stay tuned for some great music and some great stories. And what better way to get us in the mood for music than to kick off with the iconic Doobie Brothers singing their 1970s soundtrack, Listen to the Music. Ah, oh, what a great piece to get us in the mood for some music. I love their lyrics. Some are happy, some are sad. And we've got to let the music play what the people need as a way to make them smile. So for this first episode, I actually have a bit of a surprise for you. I've never put any of my clients or my students through something I've not done myself. So I figured I should be the first person to share my eight tracks of music with meaning. 
So not only will you hear some of my favourite pieces of music, but you'll learn a little about my own background. That sound fair to you? So to start with, my first track is from all the way back in 1960, and I hope it'll get you giggling and smiling a bit. I was born in Mangakino in the North Island of New Zealand. Actually, in 1960, it was just a shanty town. It was really just a built-up shack, bunch of shacks, uh, for all the uh, workers who were working on the Waikato Dam. And my parents came over, $10 poms, or £10 poms, they were called in England, £10 poms, they came over, and uh, I was born uh, in that shanty town. I have really quite vivid memories of that time, even though I was only three. And I remember, um, I remember more than anything, the rain. Um, when the rain came down, it had been so dry. I can vividly recall uh, we had these great big water catchers on the by the roofs. You know, there was no there was no water supply, and. I can remember the rain coming down and and everyone getting really happy. And suddenly all the washing lines were out full of, of clothing. And, and as a, a wee young three-year-old, I can just remember being mesmerized by the bounce up of this heavy, heavy rain, this monsoon type rain, as the mud splatters kind of went up in the air. And it seemed like they went up a long way to me. Um, it was probably not that high. Um, and really, I'm just, uh, uh, I remember my father up on the stepladder, or actually the ladder, uh, tapping on that big water container. I'm sure many Kiwis will have stories from their own families of those great big water tanks that houses were built with in those days. And I'm just a little bit proud of my dad because he was involved in that dam for a few years, building that electrical power station right by Mangakino. And, you know, that is still generating power for Kiwis all these many, many years later, 60 years later. So you got a picture of this little three-year-old in this little shanty town in Mangakino, and he's like, Wandering out. And this is the song that I was reported to go around singing. And every time I hear it, it hits on the old, the old heartstrings. It takes me right back to those early days, uh, being very young in, in New Zealand. And uh, it's a piece by Lonnie Donegan called My Old Man's a Dustbin. No, not a dustbin. My Old Man's a Dustman. And apparently I used to sort of parade around the house singing this song at the young age of three. So I hope this one will get you giggling and smiling a little one. Lonnie Donegan, my old man's a dustman. Haven't you just got to love those lyrics? My old man's a dustman, he wears a dustman's hat. He wears corblimey trousers and lives in a council flat. Does anyone actually know what corblimey trousers are? I just imagined some great big overalls being held up by a pair of braces. Now, I'm not sure what my old man would have made of his three-year-old son marching around the house, banging a dustbin lid, singing that song, as he worked his butt off in the Waikato Dam back in 1960. But I do hope he had a bit of a giggle. And let's just think about what was going on in that time. In 1960, well... The Soviets shot down the U.S. pilot Gary Powers in, in his U.S. plane, the U-2 spy plane. 
the uh, United States escalated the Vietnam War. They sent 3,500 soldiers over there. Governments try to find ways to kill people and sell arms to anyone buying. Does that sound familiar to you? The Aswan Dam got, uh, got, got going in Egypt in 1960. And over in America, Dwight Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act into law. Don't you think we could do with our New Zealand Bill of Rights being made law over here? Hmm, I reckon. There was a massive ban the bomb. This is 1960. Massive ban the bomb rally in London. 100,000 people were there. Does this sound familiar to you? Governments finding ways to ignore the peaceful wishes of its most committed citizens, trying to blow as many human beings to bits as possible. On the literary front, there was a classic American novel, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And, very importantly, J.F. Kennedy won the presidential election. You see, on this programme, you get music, history and a life story all rolled up into one. So now we move on to 1964. I'm in Leon C in Essex. My parents came back to the UK. Now, you can probably hear a slight disappointment in my voice. I mean, if there was ever evidence of psychosis, that would be parents leaving the beauty of New Zealand to go back to the smog and grey of London and England. With such psycho parents, it's no wonder I decided to become a psychotherapist, is it? And Leon C was just on the coast on the north of the Thames, heading out towards South End. It was really just a place where all the mods and rockers of the day would stop off and have a piss in their motorbike convoys on their way to South End every summer. I did love those mods with their collarless beetle suits and their winkle picker shoes, riding their tiny Vespa motorbikes with those lion tail tassels blowing off their handlebars. But as for me, at the tender young age of six, I was busy dating a six-year-old Chinese girl called Suki who lived across the road from us. And we would spend all our time dancing and laughing as our mothers looked on, sipping a polite cup of tea. I can still see Suki's face laughing and giggling as the intensity of life for a young child just burst out of us both. It was as if our bodies simply could not contain the joy we felt. Well, you moved away and broke my heart, Suki. But wherever you are, I hope you are still laughing and dancing. And one of the pieces we danced to? Well, from this era of the mods and rockers, I can vividly remember us spinning and dancing to another iconic piece of music, this one from the Motown era. Let's listen to Petula Clark singing Downtown. Of course, in the same year as Downtown by Petula Clark, 1964, well, this was also the year of John F. Kennedy's assassination, wasn't it? And, you know, even at the age of seven, I can remember kicking a football in our Leon C. driveway whilst my dad was up on a ladder mending the guttering and listening to his transistor radio. I can remember him saying to me, one of the greatest men in the world has just been shot and killed. This is a terrible thing. 
And I can remember to this day being struck by the import of his words. Of course, many years later now, it is no mystery to me why he was killed. We know that Kennedy was about to shut down the illegal government within a government called the CIA and to stop the senseless killing, murdering and maiming that was going on in the Vietnam War. The horror of Kennedy's failure and his death is now writ large across the whole globe where the American CIA-funded war and drugs have been happening all over the globe over the last intervening 50-odd years. Well, to cheer you up a little bit and maybe lift your soul a little for our third track, I invite you to leave all that behind for now and travel with me from Leon C right across England to the Welsh borders to a tiny cathedral city called Hereford. And let us travel forward to the year 1971. I'm now young and innocent, well, maybe not so innocent, 13-year-old. And I am singing in the cathedral choir. Yep, me, wearing a cassock, surplus and rough and all. You know, I can't quite describe what it was like for me when I first walked in to Hereford Cathedral. My brother was already in the choir there, and we turned up from Leon C, and we were camping in a campground just away from the cathedral, and we turned up late for a Sunday service. And we walked in, and the, the cathedral was full. And what felt like miles away in the distance, I could see these tiny little red blobs where my brother was singing, but the sound that hit me as I walked in to that cathedral. It was as if I was being washed in a vibrational frequency. I wouldn't have said that in those days, but something in me was stirred so deeply. I remember being so excited by the quality, the building, the sound, and it cascaded all around. It was quite mesmerizing. I, My breath went from me. And so I joined the choir, and whilst others might speak of privilege, um, this was a utilitarian functional thing for my mother. We had little money, and she had been training us to sing so we could get a choral scholarship and pay for our education in a, a top school. So we worked hard for this. There was no sense of it being handed on a silver platter or any idea of privilege. This was grueling hard work. We had to get up at 6 a.m. to cycle in the freezing dark and the cold to get into the cathedral for a 45-minute morning practice every day, except for a Wednesday before school and in the school holidays. And then there was another 45-minute choir practice after the school, followed by, you know, when everyone else was out playing and having fun and messing around. We were queuing up for our afternoon choir practice, and that was then followed by a full even song lasting about an hour. And, and every Tuesday, that was followed up with a full choir practice with the men that went on till late into the evening. And the only day off was a Wednesday. And on Saturdays, when school finished at midday, because we had morning school then, we would then have Saturday afternoon choir practice, which was another full two-hour job with the men. And that would be followed by yet another evensong. And that wasn't even the big day. The big day was Sunday with two services in the morning and one in the evening. 
And then you have to add in concerts and tours that we were trained in, and we could not make a mistake. And if we did not turn up, we were expelled. And that was your education gone. So it was absolutely ferocious. It was disciplined. And, you know, for uh, ages of, you know, nine to, to 13, I can't think of a better training in discipline, in like a military training, and also in precision and excellence and creative endeavor and how much work goes on behind the scenes to produce anything that sounds halfway good. So for those four to five years, I was immersed in some of the most beautiful and spiritually inspired music the world has produced. And I often say that Hereford Cathedral was really my second home. The soaring music matched the soaring Gothic architecture. And it all lifted my spirit on a daily basis and provided me with a stability and security, which I really lacked at the time in my family. My family was going through a breakdown. My father was struggling with alcohol and violence, and the family broke apart. It was a devastating time for the family. But throughout all of this, there was this daily structure and discipline of the singing. And I think it's probably this more than anything else that kept me sane. And these days, we know that it was probably what kept my nervous system soothed, singing in a choir, focusing on the task at hand. So the piece of music I'm going to play you now was actually the epitome of our choral year. It was, it was sung every Ash Wednesday. This piece carries the highest note in our sacred choral music, the top C. And it's sung by a single chorister as part of a second or sometimes called an echo choir. On some occasions, this choir is placed in another part of the cathedral altogether with, with conductor relays. And when I got to sing this, I sang it once. I felt that all of my tedious singing training and my singing practices that had I'd done since the age of eight was worth it. You see, I think something changes in your body when you vibrate at that frequency of the top C and you're supported and surrounded by two whole choirs. It touches me to even talk about it. I think it might be perhaps the closest thing we can get to literally flying to heaven. So here's my third track for you. I hope it uplifts you as it does me. Every time I hear it, I'm transported back to Hereford Cathedral as the choir and the organist lift me up so I can sail across the vaults of the heavens on that top sea. Listen carefully for the second choir. It is simply one of the most breathtaking pieces of music that I know. Gregorio Allegri is the composer. I know it's quite a jump here from Motown and Mods and Rockers to the Sistine Chapel in Rome, where Allegri uh, sang and, and wrote his music, round about 1630. This particular version is recorded by King's College Choir, Cambridge. And I'm afraid I don't know the name of the, the, the soloist. Enjoy. Allegri's Miserere Mei. And that, by the way, is Psalm 51. 
So the year that I was singing that amazing piece of music, 1971, there were a few other important things going on in the world. I wonder if anyone listening can remember. Well, here's a few memory joggers for what else was going on in that year. Um, that was the year in which the New York Times, uh, I remember, published sections of the Pentagon Papers. Um, apparently, the Pentagon had been lying to the people about the Vietnam War. Gosh. What a surprise. Who ever heard of such a thing? A government lying to his people? God forbid. Um, there was, um, in football, there was a tragic disaster in the UK, the Ibrox disaster at an old firm football game. I wonder if anyone remembers that. Um, a terrible disaster in Glasgow when the uh, Rangers were playing Celtic uh, led to lots of deaths and um, yeah that was a that was a big big thing in the, in those of you who followed football which I was really into at the time um, there was the uh, um, in that year there was also the Charles Manson uh, murders uh, of the um, celebrated actress Sharon Tate and other people as well. Um, and, and Charles Manson was convicted in that year. That was an infamous case of darkness and depravity. Um, also, the Walt Disney theme park opened near Orlando in Florida. And, you know, you know rumours that 200 children have gone missing there cannot be true. So, But, you know, it might just be good to hold on tight to your kids and make sure they don't get lost in any of the tunnels down there if you go there. Um, another piece of dark news, if you like, was that very disturbing film, Clockwork Orange, was released. And um, somehow, uh, when I was at school, um, some sixth formers smuggled that into our school film society, can you believe? <laughs> we all sat there and watched it at the innocent age of 13. Um, I think the teachers were so square. They thought it was some kind of harmless film about a clockwork toy. <laughs> Well, you know, I had nightmares about that film for months, possibly years afterwards. Um, this was also the year in which Jim Morrison of The Doors died, you know, most likely from a heroin overdose. Um, he, he of the famous track, This Is The End, My Friend. And, and the dark underbelly of rock music was also emerging at this time. Um, Morrison's death only came two years after the death of the Rolling Stones guitarist, Brian Jones, and, and, and nine months after the death of deaths of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. So we were beginning to see that all this popular music had a dark side to it as well. And in this year, Apollo 14 landed on the moon and um, their astronauts were seen by us bouncing around the place, playing golf. Um, and and um, it's just, you know, it's fantastic, isn't it, that NASA never lies to us about anything and really ensures that we take and took all its work seriously, hey? <laughs> and a bit of news was going on here in New Zealand was the, um, the, the, the new opera star, Kirite Kanawa, made her global debut at Covent Garden in London. That was a big thing over, over there. And um, here in New Zealand, the um, the Manipuri power station, you know, our largest hydroelectric generator was finally completed. So that's what was going on in 1971. While I was innocently singing that music in Hereford Cathedral, Put firmly in my place, eh? <laughs> so for our fourth track of music, 
I want to invite you to travel forward in time another seven years, all the way to 1978. And come with me as we now journey all the way from the Welsh marches in Hereford to one of the most beautiful cities in the whole of England, possibly of Europe, uh, Oxford. Somehow I managed to get into Magdalen College to study history. Our family still had no money, but this was one of those rare periods in UK history when the government thought that everyone should be eligible for higher education and that it shouldn't just be for the rich or those willing to become slaves for the rest of their lives as they pay off crippling government loans. My local council actually paid for me to go to Oxford. Can you believe such a thing? So there I am, pretty poor, but studying history in one of the most historic cities in Europe. And it was here, much more importantly than all of that, that I met my future wife and the mother of my three amazing children. Francesca was a nurse, and I must admit, I missed quite a few lectures when she went off duty. And I spent an idyllic few years with her and all her amazing nursing friends. Actually, I missed a whole year's worth of lectures, but I was allowed to come back and do an extra year because towards the end of that year, I suffered from glandular fever. Well. One of my most vivid memories of that wonderful time was her sneaking me into a live concert at Pembroke College, and she got she got a free ticket from a doctor who she didn't like very much, but she smuggled me in. And this was a concert by the amazing English singer Judy Zook, pretty much, you know, not really as famous as I think she should have been. And this piece of music takes me right back to that evening where we were dancing and and I spent time just watching her and her friends dancing i can even recall her wearing a bright yellow boiler suit and it was just a magical moment that has stuck in my mind i think that was the night when i just knew that this beautiful half italian woman was the one for me from this moment on her free spirit and her aliveness simply captured my heart And so join with me in listening to Welcome to the Cruise by Judy Zook. This is the title track of her album. And well, what a cruise Francesca and I had of it. 28 years in fact, and three amazing children to show for it. I wish it had lasted longer, but I still hold you deep in my heart, Francesca. We were blessed with truly magical years. Welcome to the Cruise by Judy Zook. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct, or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio/app. That's at realitycheck.radio/app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome to the cruise by Judy Took. Well, in that year, 1978, while Francesca and I were dancing to that music, and I was skipping lectures without a care in the world at the tender age of 20. 
I wonder if anyone else listening can remember or know what was going on in that world. So here's a couple of memory joggers about that year, 1978. Um, in that year, I remember that uh, Hollywood started to show its really darker paedophilia side, side when uh, the director, Roman Polanski, skipped bail and he fled the United States of France after pleading guilty to charges of having sex with a 13-year-old girl. And that year also, you know, we had the um, the super tanker Amoco Cadiz, which split in two off Brittany, uh, which created one of the biggest oil spills in history. Also in that year, we had the Camp David Accords between uh, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. That's pretty relevant to all that's going on today, isn't it? And there was this incredible story of a Bulgarian dissident, uh, Georgi Markov, being assassinated by the Bulgarian secret police by means of a umbrella pellet gun of some kind, some sort of James Bond murder type thing. That was all in the news at the time. And if you're a boxing fan, then I wonder if you remember this was a year in which Muhammad Ali actually outpointed Leon Spinks in a rematch to become the first boxer in the world to win the world heavyweight title three times. In uh, He did it in New Orleans. That was uh, some comeback. Uh, 78 was also the year in which John Paul II was made Pope. And he was the first non-Italian pontiff since, I think, the 16th century. And then another dark event of cults and their power uh, in Jonestown, Guyana. Uh, Jim Jones led his people's temple to a mass suicide, which killed 918 people, um, 270 children, and... Leo Ryan, a USA congressman. Uh, pretty, pretty weird stuff that year. So that was 1978, and that was my piece from Judy Zook. And now I'm going to ask you to make a big leap forward. We're going to jump about 20 years. Now, quite a few happen, things happened over those 20 years. But 20 years on in 2000, Francesca and I are living in a tiny West Yorkshire village called Hebden Bridge, deep in the Pennines of England, right up in the north there, not far south of the lakes <clears throat> in the middle of the country. We're, we're happily married, and Francesca and I have three fab children, Laurie, who's now 12, Hannah, who's nine, and Alfie is two. You see... Back in uh, 1980, I, I got a job as a history teacher, and about four years into that, I was struck down for 18 months, uh, it, pretty much in bed for 18 months uh, with ME. And the outcome of that was that all my attention turned to healing. And first I trained and worked as a massage therapist, and then a few years later I started training as a psychotherapist. And for most of those 20 years, I was working full-time as both a massage therapist and a psychotherapist. Now, in, in the year 2000, I published my very first book, all about my own zero-strain approach to massage that I had created, which I, call no hands, I called No Hands Massage. Um, and this, uh, this was the result of my own injuries, and I developed a way to work without injuring the hands. And after this came out, I was inundated with requests to train massage therapists. And basically, this really was the beginning of a whole new journey in which I was uh, training massage therapists all over the UK and abroad, um, as well as trying to maintain a clinical practice and also spend time with my family. 
Um, I worked like a Trojan, Trojan during those years. And over those years, I would train 3,000 massage therapists in my approach. And I built up a beautiful team of trainers all around me. And, and the only thing that really stopped me dropping dead uh, from overwork was the time I spent with my family. And most importantly, on these courses, these no hands courses, um, those moments in the course where everyone was simply getting on with the job of massage. Now, on some of these courses, uh, right about the year 2000, we had as many as 100 massage therapists working in the room, and the energy was absolutely incredible. All those therapists I trained had to learn to move and and massage completely differently to how they had been trained. I taught them to stand differently, to move differently, to breathe differently, to move their fore, to use their forearms and their shoulders, and all of this really gently but incredibly deeply. So if you can just picture a room full of massage therapists working in silence, breathing, going slow, well, it was just magical. And the trainers and I were so often reduced to tears. Literally, I'd look around the room at the other trainers and the tears were streaming down their faces just at the sheer beauty of human beings looking after each other with powerful and deep but silent touch without any hidden agenda, just the touch, the breath, and the release of trauma out of the nervous system. And because the groups were so big and I wanted to kind of hold the space, I sometimes would play music that would, I think, fit in with that incredible atmosphere. And during this period of music, during this period of time, one piece of music stood out for me and all the therapists. We all use this with our work with clients as well, because it had such a profound healing impact. So, so this next piece is a really powerfully beautiful piece of healing. So I invite you to join with me and listen to a piece called 100,000 Angels by the amazingly profoundly spiritual singer and songwriter Lucinda Drayton and her almost perfect backing production and support partner of Andy Blissett. And their label is Blissful Music. So this is 100,000 Angels by Blissful Music. And I invite you, providing you're not driving or something, to just breathe and relax. And even if you are, you can enjoy this. And just let their amazing music and lyrics soothe your nervous system. And if it works for you, just picture being in a room full of 100 massage therapists, 30, 40, 40 of them kind of all sighing with peace and relaxation on the tables as their massage therapist works slowly and deeply, moving their bodies and bringing touch like angels of healing. Well, I'm afraid that's what I see every time I hear this remarkable piece of music. So that was A Hundred Thousand Angels by Blissful Music. And that year, 2000, that's the year we're in at the moment. That was uh, that was quite a quite a year. I wonder I wonder if you remember some of these events. Um Pope John Paul II made his first ever visit to Israel 
Um, and in the United States, there was a government case against Microsoft. It was ruled to have violated United States antitrust laws by keeping some kind of oppressive thumb on its competitors. Well, great that that was all sorted out, isn't it? Eh? So that Microsoft and Bill Gates could never dominate the world or medicine ever again. Sadly, most of us realize that Gates, and we discover that Gates would go on for some reason to become uh, involved in health matters, and he proved himself to be as ineffective with dealing with human viruses as he was with computer viruses. Yeah. <laughs> um, 2000 was a year in which in London, Ken Livingston became the London mayor, named as Red Ken. And uh, it's also the year in which Putin was inaugurated as uh, president of Russia. Um, NASA launched its 100th space shuttle mission, yeah, using the space shuttle Discovery. Yeah, it's so great, isn't it, that we can believe everything NASA tells us, you know. Um, after all, it's just obvious that when their rockets take off, they must flatten out and fly almost almost uh, horizontal to the Earth in a great big curve, and one that directs them always to the Bermuda Triangle in order, I mean, to leave the Earth's orbit. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, why would anyone just go straight up, you know? Some people are just idiots, aren't they? So, of course, the um, we have the new millennium. And that opened up with the most important country in the world right here in New Zealand and Dame Kirite Kanawa and the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra serenading the, serenading the millennium's kind of first dawn. Twelve hours later, you could have seen me standing with my wife and three children watching the millennium fireworks display on the Thames. And despite all the fears and panics, not that fear and panic is something that anyone is interested in making us feel, but in all the fear and panic, uh, absolutely no computer meltdown happened at all. On a darker side, this was also the year in which Kiwis woke up to the appalling child abuse that was being committed, and probably still is, to be honest, by those in positions of responsibility and power. Under Helen Clark's inept economic leadership, Kiwis also fled abroad in record numbers during this year, in thousands can't say I blame them with her ensuing record. So that was 2000. And now I'm going to ask you to travel forward in time another 15 years, right the way to 2015. I kind of want to gloss over the middle of that because in 2007, my marriage broke down. And um, and uh, yeah, after a short while as a single dad looking after my kids for half the week, I met my second wife, Ella, who was also a massage therapist. After the trauma of my family's breakup, she was like a calm and soothing balm to me and was an incredible support to my children. She kind of arrived like an angel of mercy to my broken heart and my broken life. Frankly, I don't think I'd even be here if it wasn't for her. It's that simple. And yes, you probably imagine not only is she beautiful, but she could dance. Boy, could she dance. And most of our courting was centered around me taking dance classes and struggling and learning how to keep up with her. I never, I never succeeded in that, by the way. <laughs> anyway, by 2015, we've been together for eight years, seven or eight years. And I'm now attending a weekend assessment in Paris to qualify as an international psychotherapy trainer and supervisor. And because it was in Paris, we stayed on to do some Christmas shopping in the amazing December markets in Paris. I had never been to Paris before, 
And we were both utterly enchanted by it. Drinking wine by the firelight and having coffees in all those amazing Parisian cafes. You know, having been successfully accredited, we had such a celebratory great time. And you know what? The piece of music I'm going to suggest now um, always takes me right back to that time as I finally gained international recognition for my work. So please enjoy with me and Ella this beautifully lighthearted and celebratory short piece of music called Les Champs-Élysées by Joe Dassin. That was the Champs-Élysées by Joe Dassin in uh, the year 2015. I wonder, some of you may actually remember that Paris itself was the scene in that year of two horrific Islamic attacks. The first one took place in January at the Charlie Hebdo magazine offices. And then in November, there were attacks right across Paris with 130 people killed. In fact, for this um, assessment weekend that I talked about, um, Ella and I arrived just two weeks after this massacre and Paris was still in shock. Although if you've ever been in a city after something terrible has happened, there's also a great solidarity and spirit among the Parisians. And it was, in fact, a truly special time to be there. In fact, you know, the examination board were worried about terrorist attacks. And uh, originally, the examination location was going to be in Istanbul because it's a global organization. Um, and they actually moved our exam location from Istanbul uh, to Paris to make us all feel a lot safer. <laughs> Good psychotherapists they may be, but they must not ever take up any jobs as psychics. They managed to locate us right into the center of some of the most horrific terrorist attacks of the year. So now we've reached 2015, I don't think I need to remind you of too much about that year. So I'm just going to invite you for our, for our seventh track here to travel forward with me just another five years, all the way to 2020. My children are grown up and my first grandson is growing up in New Zealand and I'm still living in the UK. But I felt the call of those grandparent instincts, those vibrations, took me completely by surprise. I had never thought anything about being a grandfather. And suddenly there I was, as if being called to New Zealand. And in the UK, we'd already had a year of lockdowns and mandates. And as I was the only grandparent who could get into New Zealand because of my New Zealand passport, because my eldest son had moved to New Zealand and was living here in Wanaka, I was the only grandparent that could get into New Zealand. So my wife and I discussed it and we decided to take the long journey. And we decided actually to take a much delayed honeymoon from our marriage a few years earlier. So what happened was, well, <laughs> we took the journey and ended up, and we knew this was going to happen, but not quite the style of it. We ended up in the confines of a military prison in jet parks in Auckland. Um, my wife and I were guarded and herded around by security personnel for three whole weeks. This was our honeymoon, remember? 
And I don't suppose there are many people that can boast of spending their honeymoon in separate rooms under military guard, but that was the indignity we had to suffer to reach my grandson because uh, Ella tested positive for some kind of nasal hair residue in a test that even its Nobel Prize winning inventor, Carrie Mullis, said should never be used to test for a disease of any kind. Um, and uh, we were given the option when we got there to the jet parks of staying on an extra 10 days after Ella's 10 days of quarantine because she tested for nasal hairs. Um, and uh, we'd have to go on if, if after her quarantine of 10 days was over, we would have to stay. I would have to stay on another 10 days after that. Uh, because then I would run the risk of catching nasal hairs. So um, so we were given the option of sleeping in separate rooms, and um, that meant that we were not allowed closer than two metres in the car park uh, with our faces covered up in those nappies on our scheduled walks. Well, I guess this is probably one of the most unique honeymoon experiences ever with, you know, guards in different rooms. We could lean out of the windows and just sort of wave at each other without wearing masks. <laughs> oh, dear. Talk of insanity and talk of trauma, actually. Uh, when we got out, we went and had a drink in the harbour bar, one of the harbour bars in Auckland. And I literally, for the first time in my life, well, not quite the first, but pretty much broke down. Uh, in public, uh, in a corner of some bar with all these loud Kiwis hugging and chatting and having a great time. It was just overwhelming to be back to normal humanity, people doing what we were made to do. And this was, of course, an enormous attack on humanity. There's no other way to understand its logic, because there wasn't any other logic. In fact, there wasn't any logic at all, if you think about it. Um, and all of that, you know, well, it was worth it because after 58 years, you know what? I was back in the land of my birth. Another funny story. Uh, just before we got into uh, the place in the jet parks, uh, I remember queuing in the passport line after we landed in Auckland. It was about kind of, you know, six o'clock in the morning. And a very excited and happy passport controller officer greeted us. I think he'd had nothing to do for the last 12 hours. Well, the airports were practically empty at this time. No one was traveling except us. And he looked at my passport and looked at me and then said one of the most sort of surprising things any passport control officer has ever said to me. He said, oh, he said, did your dad know Craig Davis? I must have looked a bit shocked and nonplussed at this question. And he just continued, only, you know, with you being born in Mangakino in 1957, I reckon your dad must have been working on the power plant there. And my best mate's father, Craig, he was working there too back then. I shook my head dumbly and apologised for not knowing Craig Davis after 58 years away and having left at the age of four. <laughs> he said, oh, don't worry. Welcome back, he said. And he added that practically everyone knew everyone in New Zealand. Walking through as if I was in a dream, I then allowed myself to be herded into a cattle cart for international travels, all of us who were perfectly healthy. <laughs> Some arrival, eh? So then after we got out, Ella and I hired a camper van and we drove all the way from Auckland to tiny Wanaka to arrive just in time for my grandson's third birthday, despite being held back uh, an extra uh, 
12 days or so at the over the um, required amount at jet parks so um and by the way if i ever meet the chef who cooked at jet parks uh, i will need restraining i can assure you that i've never known anyone murder food like the chef there at jet parks and uh, i actually had food poisoning uh, which meant that i then got uh, the the nasal swab stuck up my nose i kept trying to say no it's my stomach not my nose that is the problem i've been poisoned by your bloody chef <laughs> <laughs> and then they wanted to check for this, uh, you know, the strain of nasal hair that was in my nasal passages. Well, eventually we got out and we got the van and we drove down. And um, yeah, we actually arrived a day early to pick up my grandson from his nursery. But he'd been told that we would arrive on his birthday. So he he looked up from his playing and uh, at his nursery and and with a great big excited grin on his face, he said, Oh, am I three now? <laughs> you can't just create the logic of a three-year-old. You know, your grand your grandparents are coming on your third birthday. So when we arrive, of course he says, Am I three? Kids are just amazing, aren't they? Just amazing. But you know what? Driving through New Zealand on that trip all the way from Auckland. Visiting on the way the tiny community hospital that I was born on, born in, in Mangakina, which is amazingly is still a, a healthcare centre. But smelling the smells, hearing the sounds, seeing the sea, the mountain, the rivers and the lakes. Well, I can't really put that into words. I just knew somewhere deep in my body that I had come back to the place where my life started. And you know what? Every time we turned a corner and I was confronted with yet more majesty and beauty, I would just find the tears streaming down my face. I was home. The exile had returned. And you know what? The music we played pretty much the whole way down was this awesome music by the brilliant Kiwi musician Opataya Foya. Well, I don't think I've got his name right. Foa I, I think his surname is. But you'll know him because of his unique brand of Pacifica music became the music for Moana, the film, and his band was Te Whaka. And you know, whenever I hear this piece of music, I am brought back to that beautiful drive through this beautiful land, New Zealand, the land of my birth. So please enjoy with me Faka Aitu from the album Olatia by the band Tifaka. So that was Faka Aitu from the album Olatia by the band Tifaka. And this is me, Jerry Pipes, signing out at the end of this music with meaning segment of my weekly show. I really hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope you come back next week to join me as I invite the famous children's author, Craig Smith, yes, he of the wonky donkey fame, to sit down in the psychotherapist chair and share his life and his music with us all. Until then, have a great week, and may God's blessings pour down upon you and all your loved ones. Cheerio. You've been listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Tuesdays from 1 p.m. on RCR, Reality Check Radio.